Hello and welcome to the third episode of Go Figure, Our Man in Washington, a podcast for Chartered Accountants Worldwide Network USA. During this episode, we'll be taking you through the latest US market trends, from inflation and employment to the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and what all that means for you and your business. We'll also be looking at the latest stories to emerge from the world of accounting. I'm Antia Dirks from Chartered Accountants Worldwide and our man in Washington is David Freeman, Director of Corporate Governance at Chartered Accountants Worldwide Network USA. David, welcome. Good morning, Antje. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So look, let's start with inflation figures. Where are they in the US right now and what's the impact been on interest rates, for example? Well, the interest rates uh, have been going up and inflation has been coming down. The, The problem is that the inflation rates have been dropping tortuously slow and for for uh, reasons to do with the banking crisis we'll talk about in a bit it seems like the federal reserve had a little bit of pause about whether to continue increasing interest rates but they did by a quarter of a percent whether that's enough we just don't know but the 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 rates of interest continue to go up and inflation you know continues to come down oh well that's good and what about the interest rates effect and even inflation? Is that affecting the dollar at all? Yeah, the dollar's been going up except until very recently when it's actually been going down. And the what I've seen is that that is being caused by the expectation that the pressures on the banking system and the US economy by the increasing interest rates is making the Fed rethink these these increases and this you know we'll talk about the stresses on the banking system but that seems to be you know front and center of mind when considering the interest rates going up but you know what they keep going up they've increased the federal reserve has now increased the interest rate nine times in the last year since last march and you know we'll we'll see if the end is in sight yeah that's interesting i think the days of low interest rates are now in our rearview mirror. So look, let's turn now to the employment data. So obviously, the last couple of podcasts, we've been saying that the numbers are at a 50 year low. Is that where they're still hovering? And what about industries such as tech and real estate? There's obviously still ongoing layoffs in those sectors. Have you got any insights to share with regards to all of that? Yeah, so you know the 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 job picture although we've seen a lot of layoffs and they've spread beyond real estate and tech now uh, oh, the, really? the real estates keep on coming you know fairly thick and fast but if you look at the new the rates for new unemployment claims they are still remarkably steady and still very much low compared to what they have been so you know, they're still below 200,000 a week, which is historically low. And we'll see if that carries on. Now, the unemployment rate did tick up a little bit from its low of uh, 3.4 in, in January up to 3.6 in February. But that's still really near the 50-year low. And, you know, we just don't seem to see any material impact so far on employment figures. Now, I I will say that one of the things that I did notice, the latest release of the 
data about uh, job openings, it's actually fallen below 4 million for the first time in a, in a very, very long time. And in, in February, it was 9.9 .9 million. And that means that, you know, I've been talking about almost two job openings for every unemployed person. That's now hovering around 1.67. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues that trend downwards. So that's really, but it's still suggesting though, isn't it, that despite all the layoffs, either those people are finding another situation really quickly or they're turning to perhaps setting up their own business rather than than claiming unemployment assistance that 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 could well be the case i mean we're not we're not seeing any particular significant change in long term unemployment and monitoring that as well so uh you know it, it it's it's really a mixed picture we did get a, a i call it almost a scare in january when the new jobs report where has it been sort of declining steadily January had a surprising uptick, uh, and, and but February it's sort of waiting to be seen whether that still that trend continues or whether things will just continue to settle down. But you know, it still indicates the economy is is operating at fairly hot. Well, David, I think given the news and so on, I really think that we need to devote a chunk of this podcast to the banking situation in the U.S. and obviously the collapse of the Silicon Valley bank has been in the news and I think really for the listeners it would be helpful if you could start by giving some background to the regulatory environment of banking in the United States. Yeah sure it's quite quite interesting really. You know, bank runs are, are historically common in the United States from really the early 19th century and the United States regulatory system has always and continues to be just in react mode. So let, let me just walk you through a brief history of, uh, of, of what's happened in the regulatory world. So, you know, there was, there was a panic in 1907, and, and that led to the formation of the Federal Reserve, which is the bank of last resort, in, in 1913. Then we had the stock market crash in 1929, and that led to the formation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, which provides deposit insurance and compute, uh, some consumer protection that was formed in 1933. It's an independent agency and it's meant to maintain stability and confidence in the financial system. We'll talk about the impact of that FDIC on what's been going on recently. So, uh, you know, that, that was the, the underpinnings. And then, you know, we, ha we had the savings and loan crisis in the United States in the 80s and 90s. And we saw over a thousand institutions going under by 1989, and that resulted in the formation of the Office of Thrift Supervision. That was that was brought under the control of another agency, the Office, Office of the Controller of the Currency, in 2011, which is another independent bureau of the Treasury Department that regulates and supervises banks. Then, in 1980, well, there's a whole separate uh, sort of banking infrastructure here of, of, of things called credit unions, which are member-owned institutions, and they had their own regulatory body formed uh, in, in 1970. And then, of course, in 2007, we had, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers uh, crash, and, you know, we had, the, we had a, 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 an a act of Congress called the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, 
which formed a, another agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that's meant to Im implement and enforce federal consumer financial law. And, you know, that that's that's was the story until 2018 when, you know, there was there was lobbying to uh, reduce the, the 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 size of banks that were subject to Dodd-Frank, which was seen as rather onerous. And that happened. It was, it was a bipartisan thing. And of course, you know, that you could argue was one of the reasons why Silicon Valley banks slipped through the net. So it's it's really been it's really a mishmash, and I I, I saw one lovely quote, which is uh, the the financial regulatory system has been described as fragmented with multiple overlapping regulators and dual state federal regulatory system. The system evolved piecemeal, punctuated by major changes in the response to various historical financial crises. Sums it up beautifully. Yeah, I have to say it's fairly opaque. I would like to suggest the banking. A regulatory system in the US. So look, let's turn then to the Silicon Valley Bank uh, debacle, if we may. And I'd really be interested in your perspective on what happened there. Yeah, sure. Let, let me just give, give, before we start again, a little bit of putting Silicon Valley Bank in context. Yeah. So in, I mentioned the FDIC, FDIC. what the FDIC does in, is insures deposits up to $250,000 per person per uh, account type in a bank. So that's meant to be a bank drop to give consumers confidence in banks. And in 1985, there were 14,500 banks in the United States. That's not branches, that's actual banks. And that number has reduced significantly to the point where in 2021, which is the last figure I have, it was down to 4,200 banks. So, you know, there have been a lot of mergers, uh, you know, banks, of course, go out of business, but there are a lot of banks in the United States. Just want to make that that point. So let's let's turn to Silicon Valley Bank. So it was founded in 1983. It's the 16th largest lender in the United States up until when it went under. And it's actually the second largest banking failure in, in the United States history. Now. There were seeds of problems here already. So Silicon Valley Bank concentrated on one industry, which is startups and venture capital bank businesses. And 44% of all initial public offerings on the stock market in 2022 were Silicon Valley Bank clients. The, the bank tripled in size during the pandemic. And, and you know, another seed of the problem was the fact that the majority of the deposits they got were used to buy long-term treasury bonds to the point where half its assets were in those long-term treasury bonds. And, of course, bond yields change adversely to interest rates. So when the interest rates or, sorry, the interest rate uh, goes up, the value of the bond drops. So. You know, they were doing this to try and uh, offer competitive interest rates because the interest rates on long-term bonds are better than the ones on short-term, so they could stay competitive. So, But they were very motivated to buy those long-term bonds. What this did is it created a mismatch between their deposits, which are you know, liabilities, which they had a large number, and the assets that were 
backing them. So they had a lot of you know deposits. And just, you know, anyone can take a deposit out at any one time. They're short-term liabilities, but they they back them up with long-term assets. And then you know another factor was from uh, April 2022 to January of this year, there was no chief risk officer at the bank trying to monitor these these aspects. So you know, like like any disaster, it's never one thing. Um, no. It's a chain of events, and you know, to some extent, you could see this coming. We we also saw some things that you know call into question. The, the the knowledge of the executives, not saying that they were doing anything wrong, but the fact is that the executives of the company sold $84 billion worth of stock in the two years before the collapse. And the CEO actually sold $3. million of shares on February the 27th this year, just a few days before the bank went under. Yeah, so, so that almost it sounds like he had um, some good insider knowledge then, right? Well, I, you know, I'm just stating a fact. I don't want to say that he acted on into in, in no, the into interesting. Yeah, go ahead. So, what do you think that the fallout of SVB's collapse has had on the banking sector in general and on the economy? Because it surely won't have gotten away unscathed. Yeah. So let me just continue the story a bit to tell you how the collapse happened, because I think. Some of that actually has direct impact on the aftermath. So, firstly, the, the you know we we were talking about regulation, and actually the Federal Reserve spotted some red flags in the bank in 2021, and and the bank got six citations from the Federal Reserve uh, flagging liquidity concerns. And you know, with the economy started slowing down, the bank started seeing withdrawals from you know it's it's customers in you know what are industries that get easily affected by you know slowdown in the economy and that led to another review in february of 19 oh, sorry in july 1920 uh, 19 sorry 2022 going back a bit too far the uh, that found that silicon valley bank had inadequate oversight and control measures and the bank is reported to have restricted silicon valley bank the federal reserve from expanding its operations further and then to top everything else off later in 2022 federal reserve officials reportedly raised concerns again about the bank's liquidity and how it was calculating its capital position as as interest rates rose so you know the, the regulators were regulating but it sounds like they were a bit asleep at, at the wheel and then you know, things went awry. You know, on March the 8th, they announced a $1.8 billion loss on the sale of $21 billion worth of bond portfolios. And I'll talk about bonds in a moment and the accounting for them. They tried to sell stock to raise money to $2.25 billion. And of course, that set off the alarm bells in the market. And then uh, around the, the, the 9th of March, there was there had been a total of $42 billion in attempted withdrawals, or a quarter of the bank's total deposits. Uh, and of course, you know, as I said earlier, they didn't have the short-term assets to pay off the deposits. So the regulators shut the bank down on Friday, the 9th of March. Now, one of the things that is always a risk in a bank run is contagion. You know, the 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 
if someone sees one bank fail, then they start looking around for other banks that are showing signs to fail. And that's exactly what happened to Signature Bank, a New York-based bank, which had uh, a lot of its, com its uh, customers focused in the crypto industry, which has been you know, struggling recently. So they got caught by the contagion and they got shut down on the Sunday. And really the, the irony of Signature Bank is that, is that Barney Frank, who was one of the authors of the Dodd-Frank regulatory framework, was on the board of Signature Bank uh, when, it, when it failed. So what happened then was the Federal Reserve and the Treasury declared these banks, who, were, who as I mentioned earlier, were below the window of you know, strict Federal Reserve stress testing because the legislation was you know, weakened, the Dodd-Frank legislation was weakened in 2018. They would still declare systemic risks to the economy, and that allowed the Federal Reserve and the Treasury to actually start taking measures to help with the, 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 the deposit. Interesting. So, so let's, let's talk about the, the, the aftermath. And there are a couple of aspects of, of, of this. There's, there's, you know, actually what's going on in the banking system. There is, of course, you know, there are accounting implications. And the other aspect is, you know, the, the auditors. So, so, so let's talk about the immediate aftermath first. The Federal Reserve, so I mentioned that there's this 250,000 federal uh, sort of insurance level, but uh, most of the customers at Silicon Valley Bank actually held more than that. So despite that limit, the government said, okay, we're going to insure everything that Silicon Valley Bank has, because there were a lot of companies that were struggling over that weekend when the bank was seized and shut down. The, the could, couldn't make payroll and there was a lot of panic so after that you know insurance was extended then you know everything calmed down a little bit so that was the first thing there's also we've seen a flight of deposits from the smaller and medium regional banks to the big banks since this happened and that of course adds stress to those 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 medium and small banks what what's happened though is that the federal reserve has actually put in a scheme saying basically for all your treasury assets we'll we'll pay them back at face value and and that really has again calmed things down again but i want to talk about that under the accounting aspect what's happened to the banks well silicon valley bank has been bought by a bank in north carolina family run bank and signature bank was sold to another new york bank in about uh, sort of two or three weeks ago. The Federal Reserve is doing a review of its supervision and regulation, <laughs> naturally, because they were doing partly what they were meant to do. They were meant to be regulating. They did these reports and reviews of the bank, but the bank still went under. So there's meant to be a report that the Federal Reserve is going to be issuing by the 1st of May, and we'll see what that has to say. And then you know the Justice Department and the Securities Exchange Commission has opened investigations into Silicon Valley Bank's management. There was a story the other day in the Washington Post about some of the risk management that the management seemed to take, which may not be completely kosher. Let, let, let's, let's talk about accounting. This is really a, an, an interesting topic. The banks value securities like treasury 
bonds at something called amortized cost. And essentially what this means is for, for assets that are held to maturity, in other words, you buy a bond, but the view is, well, really the value doesn't really matter because when I, I will only redeem that bond when it matures and I will get its full face value back. So banks show treasury bonds held to maturity at their original cost plus interest minus redemptions. And at the end of 2022, the carrying value of Silicon Valley Bank's treasury bonds held to maturity in their balance sheet was $91.3 billion. Now, bonds market value varies with interest rates. And if interest rates go up like they've been doing, market value of the bonds declines. But because these bonds, which are meant to be held to maturity, are valued in the, uh, their um, historic cost and not market value, the further interest rates go up, the greater the difference between the market value and the value they're shown in the balance sheet. And in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the market value of those bonds was $15.1 billion less than the value shown in the company's balance sheet. Now, yes, that difference was disclosed in a note to the accounts, but $15.1 billion is almost equivalent to the bank's equity and so it was very material and then if you look at Silicon Valley's balance sheet you can clearly see the mismatch between deposit liabilities and their cash in fact Silicon Valley Bank only had eight percent of their deposit liabilities covered with with cash so this was a problem you know, in hiding in plain sight one thing I should point out that the difference in uh, or the difference between the held to market value and market value of bonds is not just a Silicon Valley Bank problem. And in fact, it's been widely, widely reported that the difference for all U.S. banks between those two uh, guideposts represents a six hundred and twenty billion dollar unrealized loss, which is a pretty significant chunk of US banks capital. But the fact is that you know you you can do things to aspire confidence in the bank. And I, I think for me the big issue here is why on earth are banks allowed to carry assets on their balance sheet which are unrealistic? And it's all very well saying, well they're held to maturity. Well, you know, why should a management evaluation of whether something is going to be held or not affect the balance sheet to the point where you could have unaccounted for losses that run into the billions of dollars. So I suspect there may be a little bit of heart searching in terms of whether that's a good accounting policy. And uh, finally, let me, let me just turn to the auditors. KPMG were the auditors of both Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. And in particular, Silicon Valley Bank, they were auditors for 29 years until it went under, of course. And they signed a clean audit report for Silicon Valley Bank 14 days before it shut down. KPMG also signed off a clean audit report at Signature Bank 11 days before it was shut down. And in particular with Silicon Valley Bank, it does seem like there was a little bit of a revolving door between Silicon Valley Bank and that KPMG. I saw a report by Bloomberg and it said, firstly, Signature Bank CEO was an audit manager at KPMG and the CFO was a bank auditor at the firm. An audit partner who signed off the 2020 financials a month before the bank announced 
she signed off the, the bank's financials an, a, a month before she was hired as their chief re, a risk officer. And then two members of the Signature Bank's examining committee that oversaw audit work were also previously auditors with KPMG. So, you know, the, 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 the questions out there are, one, you know, is, is that, does that revolving door affect the, you know, the, the objectivity of, of the firm? Secondly, you know, it, it just just calls into question again the public perception of what an audit is versus, versus what it actually does. For, for those sign-offs to occur just days before the bank tanked, you know, you can see why the public really doesn't understand what an audit is meant to do. It, it, it's, it's stated in the audit opinion, but I, I think public perception of audit is that the auditors are meant to be the guardians to make sure that things like this don't happen. And that's clearly not the case. So, you know, sorry to go on a bit on this, but it's a big topic. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be more to come over the next weeks that will expand on the story of Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, amazing. Well, listen, David, thank you so much for sharing those insights, particularly into the US uh, banking sector and in particular, the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and the wide reaching implications actually as well. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for from our man in Washington. Thank you for tuning in and keep an eye out for our next episode, which will be coming soon. Until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye.